Okay, good morning. Good so morning. everyone is having a great uh, Sunday. Can you believe it's already a week after Resurrection Sunday that we just celebrated? Time is flying by fast. So um, if you're going to join us uh, this morning, might as well pull out your Bibles and uh, check what I'm saying in the Word of God and go there directly so you see for yourself. So we are going to be uh, in Romans chapter 12, and then we will be in Philemon 1. So if you want to find those, then you can check that out and join with us. So uh, as you're returning there, I came across an interesting study this last week that a uh, brand new study came out and said that uh, they have just discovered that humans eat more bananas than monkeys. And I thought that was really weird because I don't remember the last time I ate a monkey. Yeah. <laughs> oh. no, so. that is that's good, yeah. So we are talking about forgiveness and reconciliation today. So with the bad jokes, please forgive me and we'll go from there. So I even got Kendall to smile on that one, so I feel accomplished. But uh, on a different note, kind of more serious note, this one's really not a joke. So um, there's the story of a church couple that uh, attended a marriage retreat over the weekend for their church. And when they came back from the marriage retreat, the pastor asked them to get up and share about their experience. And they got up and they both, the husband and wife, shared it was a wonderful weekend, it was fantastic, but while they were speaking, uh, the husband looked over and he says, you know, the only negative in the whole weekend was they had some session on conflict resolution, and he's like, I don't know why in the world they, they had that, because we really didn't need that. So after the service, the pastor walked up to the husband and said, really, you weren't too thrilled about the conflict resolution? section and he's like no and the pastor said well don't you ever fight with you know or have a little conflict with you and your wife he goes no we we never have conflict in our marriage and the pastor's like never and the husband responded says we don't throw knives and bottles at each other like other people do <laughs> i think the guy was kind of missing the point on what conflict was right i mean anyone who's been alive for more than a month knows that in life there is what there is conflict, and uh, if you've been with someone for any period of time, there's conflict. And sometimes, even when you just meet someone for the very first time, it takes 30 seconds, and there's conflict. That said, for Christians, conflict is not the main point that we want to be talking about. The issue we want to be talking about is what happens when there is conflict, and that is the fact that we need to have resolution, closure, and forgiveness and I don't know about you guys I love the issue of forgiveness especially when I have messed up how about you I mean you just want people to forgive you and you pull your Bible out and says here the Bible says forgive me you got to do this the problem is when the tables are turned and I have to what I have to forgive well, that's the point where I'm like, oh, but you don't know what they did and how bad it was and how long and you don't have any clue and they don't deserve it. It's interesting that we like forgiveness when it benefits us, which is good because that's what salvation is all about. But in that, we especially as Christians, different than the world, need to learn to share that forgiveness just as much as we want it for ourselves. And that's where the challenge gets tough. So I think it's interesting that, you know, in the church, a good biblical church, they talk about forgiveness on a regular basis. And there's people, I'm sure, sitting in churches going, hey, I heard this sermon once before. I read it in the Bible. We should be done with it, right? Problem with it is we have this ongoing issue with this thing called 
unforgiveness, right? I mean, we constantly need to forgive people, constantly. And so that's why we bring it up and talk about it. One, because of salvation. If you never repent before God and cry out to God and say, Lord, I have sinned against you. I need your forgiveness and your salvation. We never have salvation. But two, because in the spiritual battle, especially once you become a Christian, the spiritual battle begins and there is conflict and Satan brings that conflict into your life and we find ourselves in positions where we constantly have to forgive. So that's where we're going, not only today, but guess what? For several weeks in a row, isn't that exciting? So, uh, we wanna start off in Romans chapter 12 with verse 17 as it talks about forgiveness. And we read this in our scripture this morning. Verse 17, New American Standard says this, Never, and those of you in here that are good Greek scholars, which the New Testament's written in Greek, right? What does that word never translate to from the Greek? What does it really mean? It means never. Never, ever, ever, ever. Never do what? Pay back evil for evil to anyone. <laughs> well, we don't have a problem with that, do we? Someone yells at you or says something to you, and what's your first inclination? Well, I'm going to say something back. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone in or out of the church. Respect what is right in the sight of all men, and if possible, therefore the Bible infers that it is possible with the help of the Holy Spirit, if possible, so far as it depends upon all the other people in the world, right? No. Where does the responsibility lie? On you and me. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, do what? Be at peace with all men and never take your own revenge, beloved. So in that little verse, as we start to dig into reconciliation and forgiveness, we see a couple things. One, we are never to pay back evil for evil. Someone says something to us, we are not to respond back in bitterness or anger or hatred. We are to be known rather by our love, right? The Bible says Christians will be known by their love for one another, and that includes forgiveness. In fact, the Bible goes on to tell us if we have enemies, which I don't know how many of you have enemies, it says to do what to them? To bless them, to care for their needs, to be different than the world that we see. Because the world just says, just obliterate them, destroy them, hurt them, wound them, whatever. And Jesus says, no, I came to die for them also and bring them salvation. So if you are mine, show that love by blessing them. Second thing is, we're to be respectful to all, right? You ever cross, come across someone that's disrespectful? And you're just like, oh my gosh, what is wrong with that person? Well, God reminds us through Paul and Romans, again, that we are to be respectful to all people. Third, it's up to who to bring forth the reconciliation and the peace. Who is it up to? Us. If possible, as far as it depends upon you. In that, as we dive into forgiveness, I've seen and talked to people over the years, and I'm sure I've done this myself too, I'm like, when they do this, then maybe I'll consider forgiving them. When they come and apologize to me, then I'll forgive them. 
when they make it up or they pay back what they owe, then I'll forgive them. And sometimes we say, oh, I'll never forgive them. But we tend to place ownership on the forgiveness process on the other person, don't we? All the time. In the Bible, God speaks to us in the Bible and changes that paradigm. He says, uh-uh-uh, I will deal with them. What I want you to do as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, being Christ-like, you are the one to extend the hand of reconciliation. And it's implied that irrelevant of what they do or not, we are to extend that hand of reconciliation so that the relationship hopefully will not end, Sometimes it does end, but we are to reach that out to them, irrelevant of how they respond or how they react, okay? This means you and I as Christians have to forgive. Now, I've talked to churchgoers who say and proclaim very boldly and very proudly in their pride and arrogance that they will never forgive these other people because they don't deserve it and blah, 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 blah. Well, here's the issue with those Christians. I don't think they're very mature Christians if they are Christians. Because if you and I realized the impact of our sin and how audacious it is to a holy God, and yet he forgives us, and the Bible says he saved us while we were yet enemies of God. Those people who proclaim they just cannot forgive other people have no idea how much their personal sin has wounded the heart of God. That's the whole issue. Because I believe if they truly knew the love of God, and they truly knew of grace and reconciliation and forgiveness that God gives us in salvation, forgiveness would not be such a big deal. But when they hold on to that unforgiveness and harbor that and feed that, they swell up with that pride, and it's like they hold something over the other person, right? Well, I won't forgive them, so they're going to suffer. Well, the reality of that is who really suffers in that equation? It's typically not the other person. Do you know why? They don't care. The person that holds the grudge, bears that pain, feeds that anger and frustration, and tries to be in control is the one that suffers. And again, I don't think they understand how they have hurt the heart of God with their own lives. And so we are called to forgive not only others, but also ourselves, aren't we? You ever find those times where Satan plays that reel back in your mind of things that you've done, and you're like, oh, I'm just such a horrible person. God says, I have forgiven that. You need to let that go. Because if God forgives it, we are to forgive. And it comes down to this. Matthew 6.15, Jesus himself states this about forgiveness. He says, but if you do not forgive others, then your Father in heaven will not forgive you. So especially for those people in churches or claiming they're Christians that saying, well, I'm not going to forgive them. Well, guess what you've just incurred upon yourself? If you will not extend forgiveness to others, God says, hey, well, you can't forgive them, then I guess I'm not going to be able to forgive you. You see, God is not the meanie bad person here. It's us trying to be better than God and going against God's word. Now, all that said, before we dig into Philemon, I want to share this. Forgiveness does not exclude or excuse accountability and responsibility. 
I remember years ago reading a story about a gal that went to prison for whatever crime she had done, and she was actually sentenced to the death penalty. And the day before she was going to the death penalty, she told the guard, she goes, I have just read the Bible and I've come to salvation in Jesus. He is forgiving me. You have to forgive me also. Well, guess what? She still went to the next day. She still went and had the death penalty implied upon her. Forgiveness does not release us of responsibility and accountability. If you steal someone, the store owner may forgive you you still have to pay for that crime. If you kill someone, that family may forgive you, but you still have to pay for that crime. Forgiveness is not a free-for-all to say, well, if I forgive you, then you're scot-free. There's no responsibility that you have to deal with. There still is responsibility. The only thing is, you know that God has forgiven you and you have a free heart. So, on to Philemon. Isn't this fun so far? Woohoo! Philemon, we're going to read verses 1 to 3, and that's as far as we're getting today. So, Paul writes in this little book of Philemon, he says this, I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So first, a little background if you're taking notes. Philemon is sandwiched in between Titus and Hebrews. It's one of a small group of personal letters that the Apostle Paul wrote. Philemon, if you're struggling reading your Bible, is a great chapter, a great book of the Bible to read. you know why? It's short. It's one chapter long. <laughs> you know, so if you're struggling to read the Bible, read Philemon because it's one chapter long and it'll take you about two minutes to read the whole thing. It's grouped together with these letters from Paul, the Apostle Paul, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, and Philemon, of course. Um, the interesting thing about this is this is one of four letters that Paul wrote. We've read his other letters that are written to the churches, right? Romans and the others that are written to specific churches. These four letters are not written per se to the church, although they are. They're written to specific individuals. So we get an insight here into Paul's relationship to these people and his mentorship of them as Christians, as he's kind of the spiritual father for them and has he's a spiritual brother to them. So he's writing these letters, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus and Philemon, to individuals, but they are also to be shared in the church. Paul wrote this letter to Philemon around A.D. 57 to 60, uh, probably... One of the times when one of his first imprisonments in Rome, when he's being imprisoned for preaching the gospel, and, you know, again, where God can use anything for good, right? Paul's in prison for preaching the gospel, so what does he do with his time? Instead of moaning and groaning, complaining about how bad it is and how the conditions are not like the Hilton in the, in the prison, he's writing letters to churches and the people saying, this is God's message to you. In other words, Paul is making the most of his situation and his time, which is the whole message to us as well, right? There are those times we have that idle time in our hand or things don't go well. We should be making the most of that for God's glory. So this letter is written to Philemon by Paul. Paul is also with Timothy at the time. Um, and we know that Philemon must have been a very wealthy and influential person uh, in Colossae and Asia Minor because it talks about the church in his house. Well, 
the only people that could have a church in their house and gather the people were the wealthy people because they had large enough rooms to have people in. So Paul's writing to him, and he writes this letter specifically to Philemon. And as we'll see, he also writes it to be shared in the church. He's writing about a runaway slave by the name of Onesimus who had apparently stolen something valuable from his master, either money or objects. He ran away, runs off to Rome to kind of blend in with the crowd where he can't get caught. And uh, in that process of this slave lying, stealing, cheating, running away, leaving and abandoning his post with his master, he comes to salvation somewhere with Paul. And he and Paul begin to work together, and he becomes very impactful into Paul's life. So Paul writes this letter to Philemon, the master, the slave owner, to do the godly thing as a Christian. And he says, I want you to forgive Onesimus. And to go a step further, as we'll read in the letter in the next couple weeks, he says, I don't want you just to forgive him. I now want you to welcome him back into your home after he's stolen from you, after he's ran away, after he's wronged you, and realize that he's come back now as a changed man, and I want you to forgive him, and then I want you to welcome him back into your home as a fellow Christian. Right? No longer as a slave, but now as a spiritual brother. Well, that raises forgiveness to a whole other level, right? I mean, you think about someone that's wronged you, and God says, I want you to forgive him. You're like, all right, well, I'll forgive him, whatever. But then God says, oh, <laughs> I want you to be in a Bible study with them and let them stay at your house. Wait a minute, Lord. I mean, I'll forgive them, but I mean, to, to build this relationship with them, now you're going a little far. And God's like, exactly right. That's what I want you to do. You see, Philemon had a legal right to punish Onesimus, to have him tortured to pay for his crimes, or perhaps depending on how much he stole, to even have him killed. Because in this time, slavery was common. Onesimus was a possession, not considered a person, until he's sent back to Paul. And as a possession, a piece of property, Philemon had the legal right to impose judgment upon him. But here's the kicker and here's the play for all of us. He had a legal right to do this, but by God's command through Paul, he did not have a spiritual right to do this. God calls us to obey the laws of our land, right? Unless they what? They go against his laws. And here God says, Philemon, you have a legal standing here that you can punish the slave because yes, he has wronged you and by the letter of the law, you can hold him accountable. But then Paul switches and says, on a spiritual side, you've had a spiritual debt that was forgiven, and you need to extend that same grace and mercy to this man as well. So, challenging stuff, right? And the big issue about Philemon accepting Onesimus back, not only as a slave, but now as a spiritual brother, is this. Onesimus has come into the spiritual family of God. He's received salvation. He's trying to grow in the Lord. He's part, he's a member of the church. Yes? As a Christian, he's a member of God's church. Matthew 12, 25 says this. Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And any city or house divided against itself 
will not stand. What Jesus is saying in, in the Gospel of Matthew is this. If you have a church family and you have division there, well, you're opening the door for that church to fall, right? If you have a family at home and you have division there, you are opening the door wide open for Satan to get a foothold and to have destruction in that family. And that's where we read earlier, it says, as much as it's up to you, be at peace with all people. We are constantly be, to be seeking and desiring reconciliation and forgiveness and peace in our homes, in our workplace, and in our church so that we would not give Satan a foothold or be divided and fall. You see, that's how Satan gets into churches. He gets them into where there's bitterness against each other and unforgiveness and pride and arrogance, and those little things begin to add up, right? It's kind of that imagery of, of yeast and dough, right? If you're a baker, and if you're not, you can go on YouTube and kind of look this up and kind of check it out to grow. How much yeast do you have to put into dough to impact it? Just a tiny little bit. You know, it comes in those cool little packets, the little circle they make it for you now. You just put a couple of holes in there, you put it in that dough, you walk away, and you leave it for a while, and what happens to that dough over time from that one little tiny grain of yeast in there? That yeast infiltrates the entire ball of dough, right? It all started with one little tiny droplet of yeast. One little tidbit of gossip, one little tidbit of unforgiveness, one little tidbit of resentment that was held on to eventually will spread like wildfire and be an epidemic in whatever setting that is. That's why forgiveness in God's house is such a huge issue. So Onesimus leaves, he leaves a thief, a liar, an enemy, and a betrayer. But when he comes back, he comes back as a Christian, a fellow church member, and united in Christ through salvation. That's a good start to set on. Now about Paul. Before we dig into Philemon, we need to know a little bit about Paul and how his impact of his heart is in this letter. Well, Paul himself was, like us, once an enemy of who? Of God. In fact, we know the story changing from Saul to Paul. You know, it's that great story we love to talk about that for, for years, Paul was a Pharisee, a religious leader. And he thought it was God's desire to kill these Christians because these Christians did not follow the Jewish law, per se, that they believed God had set down. And so he spent his life in religious pride and arrogance seeking to break up the Christian community by separating families, by torturing them, imprisoning them, and even putting some to prison. And we know that Paul himself was changed on that road to Damascus when God speaks to him and says, Why are you persecuting who? Me. You see, Jesus took Paul's persecution of other Christians personally. He doesn't say, Saul, why are you persecuting my Christians and my kids? He says, why are you persecuting me? You see, the offense is always really against God, isn't it? We take it out on other people, but the one we really have the offense on is God himself. Because we are messing with his kids, with his family. And if you're a good parent or a good friend, what do you do when someone's messing with your people? You stand up for them, right? And you take it personally. 
that's what God does. He says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul is blinded, right, for three days and told to go where? To a Christian home. Well, the weird, ironic thing is that's where Paul was headed anyway, right? As Saul, he was going to go to Christian homes only to divide them. Now he's called to go to a Christian home to receive care and mercy. So what makes this letter so impactful to Paul and the whole situation about Onesimus being an enemy of God and now returning as a saved child of God? Well, Paul knew what it was to be changed by Christ, didn't he? He personally knew the impact, the radical change, the new creation that God gives when you come to salvation. He knew that personally. And he was probably most likely the one to lead Onesimus to salvation and had seen before his own eyes God change Onesimus' mindset and attitude. So one, Paul can relate with him. Two, when Paul was on this road to Damascus, he was blinded, right? Well, I don't know if you've ever been blinded for a couple days or been wounded somehow, but it's a very humbling feeling. You know why? Because if you're suddenly blinded and you've been a seeing person for all your life, you are extremely limited right now, right? There is almost nothing you can do. When we lost power Friday night at our house and up through Saturday morning, you know, I was fumbling around trying to find flashlights and candles and stuff with Christy and Tara. It was a very uncomfortable feeling because I'm used to seeing and it's easy and obvious. Now, suddenly there's obstacles in the ways and I can't see them. There's things I stub my toe and knee into, and I can't see them until I've impacted them. Being blinded is a very humbling thing because you are out of your element. You're out of your control. And for Paul, this was a big issue because he now needed help to get to where he was going. Not only that, when he's in town, when he's brought to this house with these other Christians to be cared for, he can't run away if they come after him, right? Which, why would they come after him? Well, he's been destroying Christians all this point up to now, right? He can't run away, and not only can he not run away, if someone takes a swing at him, in good Christian love, he can't defend himself because he doesn't see it coming. He doesn't see it coming. He is totally, completely at the mercy of where God sends him and the people that he meets there. Now, catch this whole picture. Paul has been persecuting Christians. And God says, dude, I'm gonna blind you for a couple days, I'm gonna make you helpless, and now I want you to go to those Christian homes that you've been destroying, and killing, and dividing, and you are gonna be at their mercy. You put yourself in Paul's place all of a sudden. Are you excited about this? Here's the kicker, what doesn't what don't these other Christians know at this point in time? What do they not know? That Paul's changed. All they know is what? This is the guy that tortures Christians. This is the guy that hunts us down, that separates our families, that throws us into prison, that tortures us. This is the guy that we don't want to be around because he's going to hurt us. Paul knows that they don't know that, and that's where God sends him. How awkward that had to be when they brought Paul to this house, and he's knocking on the door, and he's like, uh, Hi, I'm here. Good to meet you. Right? 
because Paul knew from his own heart before he was changed, if he was those people, what would he do before he was Paul? He'd be like, hey, honey, where's the bat? He's right here and he can't see me. I'm taking him out, right? Paul knew that when he was Saul before Christ and salvation, that's probably what he would have done. So to go now to these Christians, totally having to trust them, unable to defend themselves, unable to run away, totally at their mercy, knowing they probably don't know he's changed, is awkward. Now take that context and put it into Onesimus. Onesimus knows he's wronged his master. He knows his master has a legal right to impose judgment, right? But now he's going back and asking forgiveness and walking into a situation that he doesn't know what, what his master's going to do. Is he going to beat him or is he going to show grace and love and mercy? Paul's hope is like what happened to him. Because when he gets to that house, God also spoke to those Christians and told them to care for Paul, right? And so they do. And this is Paul's hope for Onesimus, that when he's sent back, that Philemon will receive him back now as a spiritual brother. So, we get on. The whole point of the letter is reconciliation and forgiveness. So Paul writes, he says, To Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, verses 1 and 2. So he's writing to Philemon specifically as an individual in the context of what? You and I are fellow Christians now. You and I have both had our debts of sin paid, by, paid for by God. We are no longer living for ourselves. We are now family. We are now Christians. We now live for the glory of God in everything we do, right? So he writes to him not as just a person, but as a brother and says, we need to act godly right now. Okay? But then he goes on, he says, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, to the church in your house. So here's where it gets kind of interesting. The letter is to Philemon. Aphia was probably his wife. A lot of theologians think Archippus was either a very prominent person in that church or perhaps their son. And then he also writes, and you see in verse 2, he says, and to the church in your house. So here's kind of the kicker. The message is to Philemon, but guess what? God's not keeping this one a secret, so Philemon can just kind of do what he wants. He says, well, this is what God wanted. God is kind of saying through Paul, he goes, this is to you, Philemon, but I want your wife to be involved in this, and your son, and I want the church to know about this too. Well, now we're on a whole other level, right? This whole forgiveness thing that you have to do and welcoming him back as a brother is no longer just a secret between you and Paul and God. It's an issue for the whole church. Well, doesn't that raise up the ante a little bit, right? I mean, how would you like it if all of your forgiveness issues, you had to come up in front of the church every Sunday, which we'd probably all be up here every Sunday and saying, well, this happened this week and <laughs> I was wronged or I felt I was wronged and I thought they were against me, so I kind of got to let you all know <laughs> What I got to do here? Called confession, right? God wants Philemon to put this issue in front of the whole church. You know why? Probably just to humiliate the guy, right? No, God's not in that business. God is speaking through the Apostle Paul to Philemon to kind of say, 
I'm giving you this high charge to accept him back now, not as a thief and liar or any of that, but now as a spiritual brother, a member of the church equal with you, a member of your spiritual family. I want you to do this as a witness to everybody else in the church that if you are in church, if you are in God's family, when conflict arises, this is what you do. It's to be a standard set for them in how the whole church is to live by Philemon's example. So, Paul goes on and he writes, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus. Now, some of you know the author, John MacArthur. He makes an interesting notation about Paul's message here because Paul writes, Grace and peace. And that was a typical writing for Paul when he introduced his letters, right? But here's the thing that John MacArthur notes about this. He says, grace is the means of salvation. Grace, the acronym we've talked about is what? God's riches at Christ's expense. In other words, we receive salvation by grace through Jesus Christ. We haven't earned it. We don't deserve it. It's a gift. It's grace, right? So grace is the means of salvation. But Paul goes on to write here in verse 3, says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. John MacArthur notes that peace is a result of grace. When you come to salvation in Jesus Christ, you realize your sins are forgiven and your eternity is set with Jesus in heaven. Well, suddenly you're at peace, right? You don't have to bear those burdens, carry that baggage of the past and guilt and shame around, have that anxiety, wondering if you've done enough to earn God's favor or if you've messed it up. When you get God's grace, you also get God's peace. And as Paul states here, grace to you and peace from where? God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, you were given the grace, a free undeserved gift, and peace should follow that also. You see, grace and peace are like two conjoined twins that can't be separated. They go together all the time. So, Paul is calling Philemon to live out the practical implications of the gospel, to do just as God has done to him. He wants Philemon to completely forgive Onesimus and to be reconciled to him, reconciled being to be made right. To have the relationship restored okay this letter written in AD 60 is just as relevant to us today as it was to that church and to Philemon back then isn't it because as we read this and dig into it can you hear God kind of speaking to you and tugging to you saying uh, here's what my forgiveness is and it's probably different than your mindset right I want you to go higher and do more. God also gives us a tremendous image of what this forgiveness is in the story of the prodigal son. Remember that? Most Christians, one of their favorite stories. And at the end of the story, the prodigal son, who has basically told his dad, I want you to die and give me my inheritance now. I don't want to wait around till you actually die. I want my stuff now. He takes it, the father gives him the inheritance, all the wealth, and the kid goes off and what? Blows it on crazy parties and women and whatever else he can find. He blows it, the whole inheritance. He 
finds himself as a good Jewish boy working on a pig farm, which is completely against their culture and their nature, right? Pigs were unclean. You didn't hang around pigs. You didn't have a ham on Easter Sunday, right? They were unclean. So the son realizes he has blown it all, he's lost it all, and it's nobody else's fault. He's completely responsible for blowing his entire inheritance. And he realizes that his dad's servants are living better than him. So he gets it in his mind to go back to dad and say, Dad, I have wronged you. I no longer deserve because of what I've done to be considered your son. But would you consider me to be one of your servants and take me on as a hired hand? In fact, he says in Luke 8, 15, 18, he says, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And we know the story. The kid shows up, he spends the rest of his life in servitude to his dad and grumbling and living in a little cottage at the end of the property, right? No. His dad sees him coming. He runs to greet him. He embraces him. He places a ring on his finger, a robe around his back, and he says, come, let's have a feast. My son who was lost has been found, and we need to celebrate. And he restores the son to his full rightful position in spite of what he has done. It's such a crazy story, isn't it? It's that Cinderella story come true, right? God gives us that example of forgiveness. But I want you to catch one thing that the son did do in that story. You know what the son did do? He repented. When he comes to his father, he's like, Dad, I blew it. I am not worthy. I ask your forgiveness. You see, for us to have forgiveness, it can be offered, but for us to actually have it personally, we have to repent, right? We have to repent. Christians are required to be forgiving people because God has forgiven them. J.B. Phillips, another good Christian author, states this, quote, We are not in heaven yet, and we all offend in many things. Forgiveness is an ongoing necessity in all relationships. Every Christian marriage, family, and local church is a community where no one can escape the need to ask for pardon and no one escapes the need to give it, right? Christians who are slow to forgive calls into question their own salvation. Do you know that? If you and I are slow to forgive, it calls into question our own relationship with God. And the image that God gives us is that parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18. Another story about forgiveness, right? Remember that story? The owner is leaving out of town, so he takes three of his servants and he gives them portions of money. Or, or no, wait, that's the wrong one. Um, the servant, this is the story of Matthew 18 about the guy that comes to his master and he owes a huge amount of money, right? And he knows he can't pay it. And he begs the master to forgive him his debt. And amazingly, the master does. But then what does that servant do? He runs out and he finds a guy who owes him a couple bucks. And instead of forgiving him, he has him tossed into jail to pay for his debt. 
The other servants see this and they go back to the master and they're going, do you know what just went down? You forgave that guy like a million dollars, just wrote it off. He just threw a guy in jail for 25 bucks. Jesus talks about this issue of forgiveness for us to get forgiveness. In other words, he gives us the picture. He says, you know what? Your debt of sin was huge. Or in our ex-president, huge, right? He says, your debt was huge, massive. Your debt of sin was immense. And I forgave every single bit of it. So now for you to forgive someone of their offenses, what is that? Here's their offenses. Here's your offenses. That's the perspective that God puts it into. That's why it's such a big deal. That's why those who say they're Christians in church and say, I will never forgive them, it calls into question their own salvation because they don't understand how great their debt was that God forgave. And they're holding something against somebody else that God says in comparison is nothing. Once again, it's the imagery of having a log in your own eye but pointing out the speck in somebody else's eye, right? That's the picture. That's the picture. Not understanding how much God has blessed and given you and I grace and forgiveness. So what does unforgiveness do? It causes huge damage, right? Huge damage. A refusal to forgive is a barrier to reconciliation. And one author put it this way. Pardon withheld keeps pain alive. Pardon withheld keeps pain alive. Have you ever had an anger issue against someone and instead of doing the right thing and just forgiving it, you kind of nurse that anger and you relive it and you keep it going and you feed it and you think and dwell upon it often and it just reinforces how bad that person is and how they've wronged you, right? Anybody know what I'm talking about besides me? Am I the only one? I guess so. That's a good thing, right? But when we nurse that pain, what it does is it creates that barrier between us and them, doesn't it? When we feed that wound, that hurt in our mind and go over it over and over again, it makes it bigger and bigger and bigger. And what that makes it is harder and harder and harder to have reconciliation. Second thing is unforgiveness stifles God's grace. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 15, if you want to turn there, Hebrews 12 and Ephesians 4. Hebrews 12, 15 says this, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it may become defiled. In other words, the author of Hebrews is saying, don't let that stuff stay in your life. When it shows up, get rid of it, right? Get rid of that when it shows up and do it immediately so that it doesn't grow. Ephesians 4, verses 26 to 27 go, 27 go on to make it much more poignant. Ephesians 4, verses 26 to 27 says this. Be angry and do not sin. In other words, he's like, I know you're going to get angry. Things are going to happen. You're going to blow your fuse. You're going to get angry. But in doing that, don't let anger be in control so that you sin. And then it goes on to say, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Why? And give no opportunity to the devil. 
Do you know that when we start nursing that unforgiveness, it's like just taking your arm and looking at Satan and saying, here I go, grab a hold of this. Get a good grip on my arm there, dude. Just hang on to that, Lucifer, and hold it so you can just drag me where you want me to go, right? Because I am not forgiving. Just, Lucifer, take my arm and just whip me all over the place. Yeah, I'm God's kid, but here, you be in charge and have control of me now. We don't forgive. It's giving that devil the opportunity to replay that image in our mind again and again and again. And when you look at it from a spiritual point of view, it's exactly what the devil wants you to do. How many times after becoming a Christian does the devil remind you in your mind of how bad you did and what things you did and how horrible and for how long? And that movie he plays in your mind going, look at this, how can you call yourself a Christian or consider yourself saved? Look at all the crud you've done. Really? That's where we as Christians can come back and say, yeah, dude, Really? And you know what's even better than that? God. I have life abundant in Jesus Christ, and that is all in the past. It is over. And when Jesus said it is finished, it is complete and finished. I don't need to carry that stuff around anymore. Get out of my life. And one of the big things as we dig into the issue of forgiveness and reconciliation is this. Not only in the church, but we live in a world that is desiring forgiveness and reconciliation. When you and I see people acting out by what they wear, by what they say, by how they have to have their point made, do you know what that really is typically a sign of? It's a sign of someone who's hurt and damaged and doesn't feel belong, so they're going to force and impose their issue and make a statement about, look at me. It's really an issue of, I'm hurting and dying inside, and nobody cares. I'm all alone, and nobody will reach out to me. That's really what that is, right, when you look at it? Because people are crying out and physically and verbally saying, I need someone to accept me, to forgive me, to take me for who I am in love. I need someone to forgive me of my sins. And that's why this reconciliation and forgiveness issue is so important. So let me close with this, and then we'll be done, and we'll go on to uh, lunch by Tara and company. We close with this story. True story to bring this issue of forgiveness home. Some of you may have heard of Corey Ten Boom, young Dutch woman who during World War II, her family hid Jews from the Nazis, However, they were eventually caught and imprisoned and thrown into one of the concentration camps. And in that time, they were beaten, they were starved, they were humiliated. In fact, her sister Betsy died in the concentration camp. And Corey Ten Boom writes this real-life picture of forgiveness of what we're trying to get to here in a modern-day time. She writes this. This is right after World War II. She says, it was in a church in Munich that I saw him. He was a balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat and a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. She said, people were filling the room out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to get to the door at the end of the room to go home. It was 1947 and I had just come from Holland to a defeated Germany 
with the message that God forgives. She said it was the truth that they needed to hear most because their country was bitter and wounded and bombed out and overcome. She said, I gave them my favorite mental picture about the ocean and sins being forgiven and cast into the depths of the ocean. She said, maybe because the sea is never far from Holland, I'm always reminded of that. And she liked, she said, I like to show the fact that our sins are thrown into the depths of the sea, never to reach the surface again. She said, I spoke to the crowd and said, when we confess our sins, God cast them into the deepest ocean and they're gone forever. She writes after she would share that message with those people in Germany that their faces would look back very solemn, shocked in fact, not quite daring to believe that God could forgive them of what they'd done. She said there were never questions after a talk I gave in Germany in 1947. People would stand up in silence at the end of my talk, they would grab their belongings and they would leave the room stunned in silence by God's message. And she said that one time in Munich, that's when I saw him. She said, instead of going to the back door, he was working his way toward me, which was really odd. She said, one moment I saw the overcoat and the hat, and the next, my eyes laid hold of a blue uniform and a visored cap with a skull and crossbones on it. She goes, my whole past came back to me in a rush. There I was in the past in a huge room, cold room filled with harsh overhead lights. There's a pathetic pile of dresses and shoes and stockings in the middle of the floor because they made us strip down naked to walk in front of the guards. She goes, I could see my sister Betsy's frail body in front of me, so starved that the bones of her ribs stuck out through her skin. She said, all I could think of was, Betsy, how thin you are. What have they done to you? said, Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. And this man, this specific man, had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent, and this man was the one that did horrible things to us. She said, there he was right now in front of me. And suddenly he thrust out his hand to me, and he said, a fine message for Arline, how good it is to know all that you say that all of our sins are at the bottom of the sea. She said, here I was, who had spoken so glibly and happily just a second ago about the great forgiveness of God. She goes, now I fumbled around with my hand in my coat, looking for my pocketbook so that I wouldn't have to shake his hand that he extended. Then the thought came to her, well, wait a minute. How could he remember me specifically amongst all the thousand of women at that concentration camp? She said, I doubted that he could remember me, but I remembered him. The leather crop that swung from his belt that he would hit us with. She goes, this is the first time since my release from that concentration camp that I ever had to face any one of my captors. And she said, my blood froze. The man looked at her. And in a strong German accent, he said, you mentioned Ravensbrück in your talk. I was a guard there. She looked at him and said, no, he, in her mind, he can't remember me. And the man continued. He says, but since that time, I have become a Christian. 
I have given my life to God. And I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things that I did there as a guard. But then he went on. He said, Fraulein, I would like to hear forgiveness from your lips as well. Again, the hand came out. And he said, will you ever forgive me for what I've done? She said, there I stood. A woman whose sins had to be forgiven every single day. Betsy had died in that concentration camp under his beatings and cruelty. A slow, starving, terrible death. She said it really couldn't have been but a few seconds that we stood there, but she goes, to me it seemed like hours as the thoughts raced through my mind. Then the thought came to her in her head. I had to reach out and grab his hand because that is what God would have me do. She said, the message that God forgives has prior, forgive, for, forgive, prior conditions, that we forgive those who have injured us. She said, the words came back to me from Jesus that said, if you do not forgive men their trespasses or sins, neither will the Father forgive your trespasses and sins. She said in her mind, she knew it was not only a command of God, but now it had to be a daily experience. She also thought in her mind, she said, since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi cruelty. Those who, like my sister and I, had struggled in the concentration camps, we brought in to counsel and to care for and try and return them back to society. She said, before I could take my hand out of my pocket, she said, I remembered all those people that were in our home that had struggled under Nazi cruelty. She said, I remembered that those who were able to forgive were somehow, in spite of all their physical and emotional scars, those who were able to forgive were able to go back and function in society. But she said, those that could not forgive their tormentors, that nursed their bitterness and their wounds, basically remained invalids and were non-functional in society. She said it was as simple and as horrible as that. She said, I stood there in the coldness, clutching my heart, realizing that forgiveness is not an emotion or a feeling. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And that the will can, can function regardless of feeling or the temperature of the heart. She said, I simply prayed, Jesus, help me. I can lift my hand, Lord, I can do that much, but you need to supply the rest. She said, and so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into one outstretched in front of me, and as I did, an incredible thing took place. The blood began to flow back in my shoulder, and the coldness went away. It ran down my arm and into my back and into my legs. She said, this healing warmth began to flood over my whole body, but only when I obeyed God and reached out and grabbed his hand. And she said, I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. She closes and says, for a long time, we grasped each other's hand. The former guard and the former prisoner. And she writes, I have never known God's love so, so intensely as I did in that moment. 
That's a story of forgiveness, isn't it? I doubt that any of us have suffered under cruelty in a concentration camp and by the hand of another had a family member slowly starting to die. But we have been wounded, haven't we? We have had others hurt us, betray us and backstab us, make comments against us. And we have found ourselves in places where daily we need forgiveness, don't we? And so we must develop the practice that Paul calls Philemon to and to that church. And like Corey ten Boom, that not only are we to receive God's forgiveness daily because we need it, but we are also to extend it daily to those who hurt us and wounded us. We are to let that transgression go in grace so that we too may receive the peace of God with a pure, undefiled heart living in the image of Jesus Christ who came to take away all the sins of the world, who came to rescue and save enemies of God, who came to bless the undeserving. We were once those people, and now that we have tasted the goodness of God, we too need to share that forgiveness and grace as well. Let's pray. Fathers, we come with the impact of forgiveness, even as Christians who have been Christians and believers in your grace for years or decades, we are reminded of the importance of your grace and your love, of not only the, the huge amount that we have been forgiven, but also the weight of forgiving others of their wounds against us. Lord, let us understand your grace and peace that we may extend it to others, that we may live with hearts that are free of burdens of anxiety, free of pride and arrogance, immaturity and unforgiveness, and we may be freed in you by living out daily, forgiving others their sins as they have wounded us, just as you forgive our sins as we have wounded you. And we pray, Lord, that in this, that lives would be changed, and above all, you would be glorified and lifted on high. In Jesus' name.